0: Hi, good morning. It's great to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 4. If you're new with us this morning, first of all, welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, You should know that we are in the middle of a series on the Gospel of Luke. Our habit here at Fremont Free is to take books of the Bible and preach to them verse by verse. That means that currently we are in the Gospel of Luke. Certainly our hope is that as we dive more and more into this Gospel, we'll see more of who Jesus is. We'll fall more in love with Him and have a greater desire to proclaim His name far and wide. Let me pray and then we're going to get to it here. Father, we want to pause here before we turn our attention to your word. We just want to ask for your help this morning. We know that our hearts are so easily distracted. I know my heart is easily distracted. I pray in the midst of all the busyness of the world, all of the sorrows that we face, all of the many things that can happen in our lives that can take our eyes off the prize. We pray this morning that you would allow us to fix our eyes on you. And in these moments where we open up your word, we pray that you would speak loudly and clearly and that we would have ears to hear. God, help us to be humble and recognizing that we need your word. On a week-to-week basis, we are, we are easily prone to wander. But God, we pray that you would help to get us back on track this morning, that you would remind us through your word of why we're here and what we're doing. We're here ultimately to bring glory to you and to live for your name. And so help us to remember that this morning through your word in Luke chapter 4. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I've always been a guy who enjoys a good preview. Now, unlike one of my co-workers, Jim, I can't say that I've ever purchased a ticket to a movie just so I could watch one of the previews. But nevertheless, I do enjoy a good preview. And I don't think I'm alone in my preview enjoyment. Obviously, given the amount of people who watch movie trailers online, there are a lot of people who enjoy getting a small foretaste of what's coming. And our collective love for a good preview is not just something that's confined to movies. Colleges have preview weekends in which prospective students can come and get a sneak peek at what college life might look like. If you're picking a wedding cake or a meal for a big event, it's likely the caterer might give you a sample of what could be coming your way. And college football teams will play spring football games in front of crowds, sometimes even huge crowds, simply because the fans are hungry for a taste of what's coming in the fall. And if there's anyone who understands that last example, surely it's Cornhusker fans. At least from my outside perspective, there's no fan base that gets excited about spring football as the Nebraska fan base. All that to say, it would seem to me that most of us love a good preview. We like to get a foretaste of what's coming. We like to know what's on the way. And because of our collective love for previews, I think our passage today is one that will resonate with many of us. In Luke 4, verses 14 to 30, Luke finally turns his attention to the public ministry of Jesus Christ. Up to this point the Gospel of Luke, Luke has been setting the stage for Jesus' public ministry. In chapters 1 and 2, Luke detailed the births of both John the Baptist and Jesus. He also gave us some rare insight into Jesus' childhood. In chapter 3, Luke highlighted the forerunner ministry of John the Baptist and talked about the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then in last week's passage, Luke 4, 1 to 13, Luke informed us about the temptation that Jesus faced in the wilderness. But beginning today in Luke 4, verse 14, Luke finally turns his attention to the public ministry of Jesus. In doing so, I actually think he's giving us a bit of preview of what's coming in the rest of the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 4, 14 to 30, we're given a small foretaste of the content of Jesus' teaching ministry, as well as a foretaste of the reaction that Jesus will receive from the crowds. And actually, I think this is intentional on Luke's part. The gospel writers, including Luke, didn't necessarily always organize their material in chronological fashion. Now, obviously, the big items are in chronological order. For example, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ comes at the end of each gospel, which is what you would expect. But the smaller pieces aren't always put in chronological order because sometimes the gospel writers, including Luke, are organizing their material in a thematic way. I think that's what's happening in Luke 4. Luke puts this particular incident. Jesus' ministry in Nazareth, where he does in his gospel, because it serves as a bit of a summary of Jesus' ministry. Or to say another way, it gives us a preview of what's coming throughout the rest of the gospel of Luke. So if you're a person then who enjoys a good preview, I think our passage today will be right up your alley. It's going to give us some insight as to the types of things that Jesus is going to be teaching throughout the rest of the gospel of Luke. It also gives us some insight as to how the crowds are going to respond to Jesus Throughout the rest of the Gospel of Luke as well. So, that said, let's turn our attention then to Luke 4, verses 14 to 30. If you're physically able, I'm going to ask you to stand at this point out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. The words will be on the screen here shortly. You can follow on that way. You can look along in your own Bibles or you can just listen as I read. But the Word of God says this. By the way, we're just standing to remind ourselves this is the Word of God. The Word of God says this beginning in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the tenant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. He said truly I say to you no prophet is acceptable in his hometown but in truth I tell you there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up 3 years and 6 months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian when they heard these things all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their mist, he went away. That's the word of God. You may be seated. So again, I think what's happening here in Luke 4, 14 to 30 serves as a bit of a preview of what's coming in the rest of the Gospel of Luke. And I think the preview is coming in two crucial areas, the content of Jesus' teaching, that's one area we're we're being given a preview of, and also the response that Jesus will receive to his person and his teaching. And so what I want to do this morning is simply walk through those two preview areas, the content of Jesus' ministry in terms of what he's teaching, and then also the response that he'll get from the crowd. So let's start by first considering the content of Jesus' teaching. In terms of message content, the primary substance of Jesus' teaching in our passage today is found in verses 16 through 21. So let's turn our attention there. Verse 16 says this, And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the tenant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now I have to admit that I've always loved this section of scripture, because there's just something about this passage that captures both the authority of Jesus and his uniqueness. But before we get to the authority that he displays, I think it's important that we understand the background here so that we can understand how he's demonstrating his authority. Going back to verses 14 to 16, we learn that Jesus was making a regular habit of visiting synagogues on the Sabbath. In the New Testament period, the synagogue was the place where the Jewish people would gather together for instruction and worship. Typically, there would be a reading, or more likely multiple readings from the Old Testament. And then a qualified man or qualified men would address the congregation and explain the relevance of the passage or passages. That seems to be exactly what's happening here in verses 17 to 21 in Jesus' hometown. We're told in verse 17 that Jesus stood up to read, which was customary, by the way. The person reading the Old Testament scriptures would stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word. And when Jesus stood to read, he was given the scroll of the book of Isaiah. Jesus then proceeds to open that scroll specifically to Isaiah 61. Now given what we read in verses 18 and 19, it's also possible he read a little bit from Isaiah 58 and Luke has compressed that together. But the vast majority of what he's quoting here in verses 18 and 19 comes from Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. So after reading from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, Jesus then rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, and sits down. By the way, sitting down to explain the text also would have been customary. So the fact that Jesus sits down here to teach is not necessarily noteworthy in this passage. It's actually what you would expect. But what he does next is not customary and is not what you would expect at all. In fact, I would argue that what Jesus does in verse 21 is one of the most profoundly authoritative moves that anyone has ever made in history. Think about it this way. We love in a world where people love to drop names or brag about their own experiences. They love to highlight their resume or the things that they've done. People will say things like, well, one time I had breakfast with Nebraska football coach Tom Osborne, and we probably talked for two to three hours, and every once in a while he'll call me on the phone. And we hear that and think, oh, that's great. Or people will say things like, well, a few years back I ran with the Bulls in Pamplona, and then afterwards I just hopped over to Mount Everest and climbed it because I had time. And we think, well, that's great too. But what Jesus does in verse 21 dwarfs whatever other resume-type achievement people might be tempted to boast in. Jesus reads from Isaiah 61 about the servant Messiah who would come and rescue the people from their sin. And then he boldly proclaims, and I mean he boldly proclaims, that scripture that I just read has been fulfilled in me. Now that is the mic drop of all mic drop moments. Whatever experience you might be tempted to brag about, whatever resume filler you may try to impress others with, it will never top the claim that Jesus is making in Luke 4 verse 21. What he's saying is that he, Jesus, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. He is the servant Messiah who would set the people free. And really, that's the content of the message that Jesus is proclaiming in our message today, or in our passage today. He is the servant Messiah prophesied about in the Old Testament who would come to rescue the people from their sin. Now, in light of the scripture that he's quoting, obviously there's more that we could say about what that entails, And perhaps it's worth saying some of those things, because the description he gives here in Luke 4, verses 18 and 19, is powerful. We're told in verses 18 and 19 that the Spirit of the Lord was on him, and he's been anointed with the task of proclaiming good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Clearly, all that language from Isaiah 61 is intentional. And it communicates communicates something to us about the types of people that Jesus came to rescue. He came to rescue the downtrodden, the lowly, the outcasts, those who've been set aside. He came to proclaim good news to those who desperately needed good news. Now without question, I think the language of Isaiah 61 does seem to be hinting at some physical realities. That Jesus came to bring good news to those who are physically poor. He came to give sight to those who are physically blind. But in light of what we read elsewhere throughout the Bible, elsewhere throughout the New Testament, elsewhere throughout the Gospel of Luke, specifically in passages like the Beatitudes, it's also clear that this Isaiah 61 passage is also alluding to spiritual realities. That Jesus came to rescue those who are spiritually poor. He came to rescue those who are spiritually enslaved. He came to rescue those who are spiritually blind. He came to rescue those who are spiritually oppressed. Or to say it another way, in light of everything we know about our own spiritual condition apart from Christ, he came to rescue people like us. Apart from Christ, we are spiritually broke. We are enslaved to sin. We are blind to the ways of God and oppressed by both the evil one and by our own sin. But Jesus came to proclaim favor to people like us, people who've been enslaved. He came to proclaim freedom to those who've been oppressed like us, the riches of God to those who are spiritually bankrupt like us. Now to be sure, the rest of the Gospel of Luke will explain further how Jesus fulfilled that mission that's described in Isaiah 61. He was able to set us free and give us sight because he went to the cross to die for our sins. Three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering death. That if we trust in him, we can experience the Lord's favor and blessing. We can know the riches of God. We can be set free from our captivity. And we can have the joy of being with him forever. Now obviously not all that's mentioned here in Luke 4, 16-21, because this is just a preview. But it's a powerful preview nonetheless. Jesus is the servant Messiah prophesied about in the Old Testament who would rescue the people from their sin and set them free. So that's the preview of the content of Jesus' message that we're going to see throughout the rest of the Gospel of Luke. But as I mentioned, Luke 4 does not just give us a preview of the content of Jesus' message, But Luke 4 also gives us a preview of the response that the people will have to Jesus and his message. Now, to be sure, we should say this from the start. The response to Jesus and his teaching was not necessarily uniform. In other words, not everyone responded the same way. We certainly see that here in Luke 4. In verses 14 to 15, when Luke is speaking more broadly about Jesus' ministry in Galilee, we see the crowds respond much different than they would in his hometown. Look at verses 14 and 15. Verse fourteen, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now we're not entirely for sure what it means that he was being glorified by all. Were they simply marveling at his teaching? Were they admiring his wisdom? Were they accepting his message? Were they committing themselves to follow him? Luke does not specify. But clearly the initial response of the crowds in Galilee was almost universally positive. In fact, Luke emphasizes that saying, being glorified by all. The universal response in Galilee seems to be positive. It's much different, though, in his hometown of Nazareth. Look again at verses 20 to 22. Verse 20, And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the tenant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him, and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Now, admittedly, the response of the crowd in Nazareth is a little bit confusing. Did they like him, or did they not like him? Certainly, it would seem their initial reaction was positive. Luke tells us that they spoke well of him. They marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. But it would seem that that initial reaction was only a surface reaction. Maybe they were impressed by his rhetorical skill, or by his way with his words. But it doesn't seem they actually accepted his claims. They didn't believe that he was actually the servant Messiah prophesied about in Isaiah 61. Of those claims, they seemed skeptical. And we know of their skepticism because of the last line in verse 22 and because of Jesus' subsequent response. At the end of verse 22, they simply asked the question, is not this Joseph's son? Now, I suppose you could hear that and think, well, that's an innocent question. They're just wanting to know what family he came from. But as the parallel accounts in both Matthew and Mark will make clear to us, the question is not so innocent. It's actually a question that is driven by skepticism and a lack of faith. What they really seem to be asking is this. Is it really possible that the savior of the world could be Joseph's son? The kid that we knew growing up, is it really possible that's him? There's just no way. The question at the end of verse 22 is a question that actually seems to be driven by unbelief. Surely Jesus can't be who he says he is. And the fact that it's a question of unbelief is confirmed by the response of Jesus in verses 23 to 27. Look first at verses 23 and verse 24. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So based on Jesus' response in verses 23 to 24, it would seem that the crowds really wanted Jesus to perform a sign. They wanted him to do something miraculous in order to authenticate who he was. They wanted him to replicate what he'd done in Capernaum, whatever it is that he'd done in Capernaum. But Jesus is not about to give a sign to an unbelieving group of people. Instead, what he gives is a warning. We see the warning in verses 25 to 27. Verse 25 says this, But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So in verses 25 to 27, Jesus is appealing to two examples from the Old Testament. In the two examples from the Old Testament, the prophets Elijah and Elisha each go to a Gentile and help the Gentile, presumably because of the lack of belief or maybe send it away, the unbelief of the Israelite people. And thus the warning Jesus is giving is this. If the people in Nazareth will not accept him and believe in him, he will go elsewhere, including even to the Gentiles. By the way, this is not the type of thing that you would say if your goal was to win over the crowd and earn their support. But as we're going to see throughout the Gospel of Luke, Luke or Jesus' goal was never to win over the crowds and earn their support. Instead, his goal was always simply to carry out the mission God had given him and to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And whoever was with him was with him, and whoever was against him was against him. There's something refreshingly bold about the way Jesus thinks about the crowds. Listen, we've all seen videos of politicians pandering to certain crowds to earn their favor. Saying one thing to this crowd to try to m- make them popular here, and then turning around and saying something seemingly the opposite to another crowd. There's trying to curry favor. But hear this and hear it clearly Jesus was no panderer. He did not pander to any crowd. He was who he was, and he is who he is. He was gentle and compassionate to lost sinners, no doubt. But he was never afraid of the crowds, and he was never afraid to poke the proverbial bear. He answered to one voice, and it was not the voice of the mob. It was the voice of the Father. As he would go on to say famously in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was always about the Father's work. It was never about his own safety and comfort. And that's apparent from the get-go here in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus knew that what he was saying would not win him any favor. He knew that it would mean serious trouble. But he said it anyway because he knew his mission. And he was going to carry out that mission and say what he needed to say even if it landed him in hot water. And make no mistake about it, it lands him in some very, very serious hot water in this passage. Look at the way the passage ends in verses 28 to 30. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Passing through their midst, he went away. I think it's fair to say the level of opposition that Jesus is facing here in Luke 4 is pretty severe. Over the years, I've had some tough conversations with people, and on occasion, I'll get an angry email, or someone might direct a snarky comment my way or say something behind my back. But to this point, no one has tried to throw me off a cliff, at least yet. And believe me, I'm very thankful for that. One of my life goals is not to be thrown off a cliff. And I would venture to say that for most of you, In fact, probably all of you in this room, there's yet to come a point where an angry mob has tried to throw you off a cliff either, and I'm sure that you would join me in saying that's a good thing. But the same can't be said for Jesus, can it? In his very first extended act of ministry that's recorded in the Gospel of Luke, the crowd responds to Jesus by trying to throw him off a cliff. It's not exactly the type of response that you might expect the Savior of the world would receive. But I suppose it's not all that surprising, is it? If Luke 4, 14 to 30 is a preview section of the gospel of Luke as a whole, it shouldn't surprise us that in the preview section, Jesus encounters some serious opposition. Because let's face it, the opposition is only going to increase from here on out. And that opposition would obviously culminate in Jesus being crucified on a cross. And thus, as one commentator put it, even here in Luke 4, the shadow of the cross looms large from the beginning, Jesus faced opposition. But it's also clear from the fact that he escapes here that Jesus would not lay down his life because he was forced to do so. But rather, he would lay down his life when he chose to do so. We're not sure how he escapes in Luke 4. We're just told that he did. Somehow, some way. God protects him. And in that, we're reminded of this, that through the Father's protection, Jesus could have escaped suffering at any time. So when he went to the cross, understand this, he didn't go because the crowds finally caught up to him. It wasn't as if he thought, oh great, they finally got me. No, he went to the cross on his own accord. He willingly laid down his life. He chose to go. And he chose to go because of his great love for us. Nevertheless, all that to say, Luke 4, 14 to 30, provides us with a preview of what's coming in the Gospel of Luke. It gives us a small content of Jesus' teaching, He is the servant Messiah who would rescue the people from their sin. It also gives us a small content of the response that Jesus would receive from the crowds related to his teaching. Some would embrace him, but others would reject him and even despise him. And actually, I think it's the response of the crowds that should prompt us to think about how how we might respond to this passage ourselves. At the end of the day, as it relates to our response, I think the main question hanging over the Gospel of Luke and hanging over our passage today is simply this. Will you accept the claims in person of Jesus Christ, or will you reject his claims in his person? As one commentator put it in response to this passage, every reader faces a choice upon reading this account to identify with Jesus and his message of hope or to side with those who reject Jesus. In other words, we face the same choice that the crowd in Nazareth faced. Will we accept Jesus and his claims, which are bold, by the way, or will we reject him? Now, in asking that question, I think we need to clarify what we mean by both acceptance and rejection. We need to clarify what we mean and what it entails to accept him. And we also need to clarify what we mean by rejection. So let's start with the acceptance piece. To accept Jesus means that we accept the claims about who he is, or his claims about who he is. And if he is who he says he is, and we accept those claims, then it's inevitable that we will want to follow and obey his commands. If Jesus is the servant Messiah who came to rescue us from our sin, as he claims to be here, if he's the one anointed by the Spirit, if he's the beloved Son, if he's God, then as we've said in past weeks, it only makes sense if those things are true that we would actually have a desire to follow him. But as we're reminded here by the response of the crowds in Luke 4.22, it's entirely possible, I should say, to be impressed by Jesus and his words and yet be completely skeptical of his claims. In fact, I think we'd have to say if we're honest... That's probably true of the context that we live in, meaning where we live. I think the average freemason would say that they, they admire the teaching of Jesus. They respect what he said. But I'm not sure how many freemasons would actually accept his claims, that he is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through him. There's a huge difference between merely admiring Jesus as opposed to accepting him. The crowds of Nazareth seemed to have a certain admiration for Jesus' skill in teaching. They marveled at his gracious words. But at the end of the day, it's pretty clear, given that they tried to throw him off a cliff, that they saw him as an imposter. So the question is for us this morning, what will it be for you? Will you admire Jesus from afar and say, oh yeah, he's a guy who has some good teachings. Or will you actually accept Jesus and his claims and then live accordingly? Now you should know this. If you accept Jesus and his claims, it might be costly. As we see here in Luke 4, the crowds attempt to throw Jesus off a cliff. And Jesus himself reminds us in John 15, if they persecuted him, they will also persecute his followers. To say that you've accepted Jesus, but then to assume that your life will be easy and free of difficulty, is to fail to understand what it means to be his follower. And it's to set yourself up for discouragement and to set yourself up not to be prepared. When I was in high school, some of my friends convinced me to run in a 20k road race, about 12 and a half miles. Now at the time I was young, which in this story is code for dumb, and full of energy and in relatively good shape, so I thought to myself, I can run 12 miles. I was just coming off of track season, and even though I seldom ran over 800 meters even in practice, I thought to myself, my track shape sh- should be sufficient for this road race. But I quickly learned there's the big difference between running 800 meters and 20 kilometers. Now, I did finish the race, and I don't think I ever had to stop, but the last, last half of the race, if I'm being honest, was just kind of miserable, and the next day was even worse. I woke up, and I was so sore. Here's the thing. I convinced myself it's not going to be that hard to run 12 miles. If I can run a mile, sure, I can run 11 more. How hard can it be? But that was a crazy way of thinking. If I had known it was going to be as hard as it would, I would have prepared myself mentally, and I probably would have done a little bit more training. And if I'd done that, I'm sure my experience would not have been so miserable. In fact, it would have been a lot more enjoyable. In the same way I would say this, I think some of us are thinking about the Christian life in the wrong way. We think of it as if it's going to be a nice walk around the block when it's 60 degrees and the weather is perfect. When in reality, it's like a 20K and there are some hills and the weather's bad and the wind's blowing in our face sometimes. We need to prepare ourselves that if we're going to follow Christ, sometimes it's just going to be hard. Sometimes people won't like us. Sometimes they might even try to do things to hurt us. But listen, this is part of it. If they tried to throw Jesus off a cliff, then we should not be surprised if they don't like us. In fact, we should kind of anticipate it. And like Jesus, we must commit ourselves now that we will live for one voice. As we clearly see in Luke 4, Jesus was not worried about what the crowds thought. He just wanted to be be obedient to his mission and ultimately obedient to the Father church, we need to follow suit. We need to stop obsessing with what our neighbors and coworkers think about us. We need to stop trying to win over the crowds on social media. We need to stop trying to appease every last cultural trend. I'm not saying we need to be jerks here. I'm not saying we need to go scorched earth every opportunity we get. Obviously, we should respond to whatever criticism we get in a way that is consistent with the fruit of the Spirit, But at the end of the day, we need to remember there's only one voice we answer to and it's not the voice of the mob. It's the voice of the Father. So when we talk about accepting Jesus, those are the types of things we're talking about. We're talking about accepting his claims and then living in light of those claims. We're talking about living as his followers, not just his admirers. We're talking about walking the hard road because that's the road that he walked. To accept Jesus means that we're all in on the Jesus experience I think it's important that we clarify that. But secondly, I think it's important that we also clarify what it means to reject Jesus. In Luke 4, there are obviously quite a few people who reject the claims of Jesus to the point they want to throw him off a cliff. And listen, no doubt there are some in this room who probably would reject his claims also. Maybe you admire Jesus as a teacher, but to accept his claims as the exclusive Savior, that seems to be a bridge too far for you. But here's what you need to understand this morning. To reject Jesus is indeed a dangerous proposition. Notice in Luke 4, Jesus does not bend to the whims of those who are opposed to him. He does not try to woo those who are opposed to him to come to his side. Instead, he plainly implies through the examples of both Elijah and Elisha, if you're going to reject me, that's your choice, but just know I will move on. I'm going to move on to the people who accept me. I'll move on to the people who want to follow me. Here's the really scary thing about what happens in Luke 4. That we know of, this is the last time that Jesus appears in his hometown. This is the last chance that many in Nazareth had to hear and accept the good news of the Savior. But instead of doing so, many rejected him and tried to throw him off a cliff. And in that way, their rejection, in the end for many of them, was probably a final one. Hear this. In God's kindness, you are here this morning. In God's kindness, many of you have grown up going to church. I'm thinking of those of you who are kids. You've grown up going to this church, and yet you've still not accepted the claims of Christ. But if you continually reject him and his claims, know this, eventually that rejection will become final. Jesus does not bend his knee to his opponents. He doesn't beg and plead for his enemies to change their mind. He simply moves on to those who will receive him. So can I just plead with you this morning... If to this point you've never accepted the claims of who Jesus is, will you once again consider those claims today? And will you come to Jesus on his terms? Listen, I know there are a lot of people right now who are trying to make Jesus into their own image, or trying to make Jesus into the image of what our culture is teaching. They assume that Jesus would embrace every modern cultural trend. They assume that Jesus would just go along with the crowds. But that's not the way it works with Jesus. We don't get to make him into what we want him to be, We come to him on his terms or we don't come at all. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is very clear about who he is. He is the servant Messiah who came to set the people free from their sin. You can either accept that claim or you can reject it. But that's who he is and he's not changing for us. So again, I think the question we face in light of reading this passage is pretty simple this morning. Which will it be for us? Will we accept the claims in person of who Jesus is and live accordingly or... Will we reject his claims and reject his person. Those are the two choices before us. But only one of those choices leads to life. So choose wisely. Don't be like the crowd in Nazareth, but instead embrace and accept the one who came to set us free, the one who would eventually die so that we could live. Look to Christ, accept him, live for him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this sneak preview that we get of the content of the Gospel of Luke here in Luke chapter four. The reminder of Jesus' teaching that he is the servant Messiah who would come to rescue those who are in bondage. We're very thankful for that preview. We're also humbled by the response that Jesus receives. The savior of the world comes, and yet he's rejected by many. Father, we pray that we would not be those who reject Jesus and his claims, but those who accept Jesus who Jesus is and what he claimed to be and who he claims to be. God, we pray that we would live in light of who Jesus is, that instead of living for our own selfish desires and our own mission, that like Jesus, we would live for the voice of one, that we would make it our goal to carry out the mission and to live for Christ. Lord, please help us to do this for your glory and for our good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen i talking about Jesus and his mission to set free those who are captive. It's appropriate that we would finish today by coming now to the Lord's table, where we have a visual reminder of how it is that we were set free. Through Jesus' shed blood and through his broken body, we were set free from our sin. We we're set free from our captivity to sin. And so what we're doing when we take the Lord's Supper is we're celebrating what Jesus has done. We're celebrating that he is the servant Messiah of Isaiah 61. He is the one who came to set us free. And so if you're a Christian and you're here today, we would invite you to participate with us in boldly proclaiming Jesus is our only hope. Practically speaking, we have five tables located around the sanctuary, three in the front, two in the back. And in just a few minutes, we're going to be playing some music in the background. And when you're ready, you can come and grab those elements if you are a follower of Christ and then take them back to your seat with you as we'll take it all together here in just a few minutes. If you're not a Christian you're here today, first of all, we're so glad you're here. We encourage you not to partake in the Lord's Supper, but instead to consider the offer that is freely made to you. That although you are captive in your sin, you can be set free if you'll turn to Jesus Christ. And we pray, and then we'll get to the Lord's Supper here. God, we thank you for the opportunity now to come to the table together and to remember together what Jesus has done. He came to set us free. And he did so by dying on the cross and being raised three days later. So help us now to remember this and celebrate it and proclaim boldly to the world around us, Jesus is our only hope. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.